I'm a, I'm a mixed martial arts fan. Like there was a time where like every UFC pay-per-view that came on, I bought Saturday and invited people over. Uh, and then I had two kids and two kids became more, uh, cost more than mixed martial arts did. So I, I stick with the free ones now pretty much, but used to be a boxing fan when I was younger. And that was kind of probably the transition into liking MMA. But boxing kind of got old for me because it was like, it was hard to keep up with. Cause if you're, anybody boxing fans? So, I mean, there's like, yeah, there's like two of us now. Um, I mean, really it's you, because I just said, I don't really like it. You know, there's like, there's all these different IBF, WBO, and it's hard to keep up with who's the champ of what, and this guy's the champ of three of them and not of another. And then you had guys like the Don Kings, the promoters and stuff that just always seemed to be shady. And, and so I kind of just started to lose interest in it. But if you're a boxing fan, you know that back through history, boxing has this reputation of bringing corruption with it wherever it goes. You go all the way back to the 40s. There's a guy named Jake LaMotta. You might've seen Robert De Niro play him in the movie Raging Bull. Robert, uh, sorry, Jake LaMotta was a middleweight boxer, well-known, famous, a good one. He was actually, at the time of this story, he was 54, had 54 wins, 11 losses and three draws. So he was beating guys five to one. And he wanted a shot at the middleweight title. But in the 40s, all of boxing was run by the mob. And it was, it's a well-known fact. It, was, it wasn't even secret back then. And if you wanted to go anywhere in boxing, you kind of had to work and, and, and do stuff with the mob. And so LaMotta wanted a shot at the middleweight title. And so in order to do that, this is what the mob set up. You will have to pay us $20,000, which in today's dollars would be about 200 grand. Pay us $200,000, and you've got to take a dive. You've got to lose purposely a fixed fight to Billy Fox. Billy Fox was kind of the boxer that the, the mobster Blinky Palermo was working with. And you, that's, that's, you know, you're dealing with the mob when the guy's name is Blinky. Uh, Blinky Palermo's guy was Billy Fox. And hey, we will give you a shot at the title, but you're going to take a dive and it's going to cost you $200,000. And LaMotta was a competitor, wanted the shot, thought he could win the belt, came up with the money and the fix was on. It was so well known that bookies at the day stopped taking bets. Fox went up to be a three to one favorite and, and people were making bets. And finally the bookies went, no, there's, we, we, we can't do this anymore. It was so well known, the commissioner of boxing went into both locker rooms, not once, but twice warning them, you better not fix this fight. You better not cheat the people. Of course, one guy's 200 grand in, right? You know, and he know, I mean, you know, it's gonna happen. They get in the ring, and later, as the story went, it ended up being investigated by the FBI and all kinds of stuff, or the CIA, whoever it was. And, uh, but LaMotta tells the story through history. And he says, he gets in the ring and he said, I threw two jabs, I hit the guy twice and he got glassy eyed. And he's like, I almost accidentally knocked him out. And so because of that, this is everybody knew, he really went like to the extreme of trying not to accidentally knock the guy out. So it became this terrible acting job. And in the fourth round, Billy Fox, TKOs, technically knocks out Jake LaMotta against the, ring, against the ring ropes and fights over and the fix was on and it stands in history. LaMotta went on, got his middleweight title shot, ended up winning the championship. You know, so uh, I guess he got what he wanted. But in those days, the mob, they knew how the system worked and they worked the system to their benefit. This morning, that's what we're gonna look at as we talk about temptation. We're gonna be in Matthew chapter four, but before we kind of jump into that, let's just review where we're at last week. Last week, we opened up Matthew four and we saw Jesus in the wilderness. He's, he's gone to the wilderness for 40 days 
and he's fasted for 40 days. And that's, I mean, literally without food for 40 days. And Satan shows up at the end of the temptation. And Satan says to him, look, Jesus, you're hungry. Here are some stones. Why don't you turn them to bread? Probably every one of us in here would have went, deal, done. It's been 40 days, I'm hungry. Satan tempts Jesus with this, this felt need that he has, this real, a real need. You're, you're really hungry. At, at 40 days, you're getting close to starvation. And so he has this felt need and he tempts Jesus with that felt need, the same kind of temptation that we get every day, need temptation. But Jesus says, man doesn't live by bread alone. What Jesus knew was the main point of last week's message. When we're dealing with temptation, there's more at stake than just the temptation. We're also wrestling with and dealing with our trust in God. And that was ultimately what it was. Satan's going, hey, you're hungry. You have a need. Here is, here's some stones. You can turn them to bread and you can eat. And Jesus said, you know what's more important than my needs? What's more important than my needs is my faith. What's more important than what I need to fill my physical hunger is the, the need and the ability to trust that God the Father is going to show up, to trust that God the Father is going to be there on my behalf. And so Jesus says, no. If it was in our situation, because we're Western cultured, we're Americans, we don't fast anymore. Most of us don't. And if we do, it's accidentally. We're not going 40 days. So, so that's not the same. That, that's not, it's kind of hard for us to adjust, but, but it might be like this. It might be that you were uh, someplace and you know, you're very passionate about your kids, especially you know, moms, you're like a mama bear sometimes. And somebody comes and, and they say something negative about your kids. And the temptation is to rip their eyes out, right? The temptation is to grab them by the throat. The temptation is to start talking about their kids, gossiping and be negative. Jesus would say, hey, man doesn't live, man and women don't live by their children alone. It might be business. It might be trying to get your business going, trying to get the next promotion. It might be trying to get a raise. And there's temptation along the way to take shortcuts, temptation to do things that are a little less uh, integrity ridden than, than you normally would, but the temptation's there. And Jesus would say, hey, man and woman does not live by their job or their career alone. Jesus would say to us, man and woman does not live by sex alone. Men and women don't live by their marriage alone. It, these physical needs that temptation comes through, Jesus says there's something that's more important and it's our faith, it's our trust because when we give into temptation, what we do is we stop trusting God. And so that's where we went last week and Chris Washington was here. And so this week we move into the second temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And we'll read about in Matthew 4, but it's a subtle temptation. It's a temptation that gets Christians more than it gets people who aren't following Jesus. It's this temptation that we know how God works, kind of like the mob. We know how God works. We know how the system works. We think we have God all figured out. And so because we know how God works, we're going to try to work God on our behalf. Now we'd, we'd never say that. We would never say, yeah, I'm trying to work God to my benefit. But we say it in other ways. We say it when, when, or we think it, we think things like this when we go, you know, you know what? We're wrestling through a situation and we're thinking through if I do this, that, and then we have this thought and it comes from Satan and the thought goes like this. You know what? You can do that because the consequences, God would never allow those things to happen. God would never, God would never let what you think could happen happen because God's not like that. God's a good God. God wouldn't do that. He wouldn't let that happen. 
or we have this thought because we think we understand how God works. We go, you know what? I know, somewhere in the Bible, I know God, God wants me to be happy. God wants me to be happy, and this decision makes me happy. So, you know, I mean, it's, God's going to be okay with it because ultimately God wants me to be happy. Or the one, and Paul talks about this. Paul shoots this one down. But we have this temptation in front of us, and we think we know how God works. And so we start to rationalize it. And we go, you know what? Hey, it's not that big a deal. And after all, God forgives. Right? God, God's a God of grace. God forgives. So I know this, is, this might be somewhat of a temptation. This could be an issue. But we start thinking, I know how God works. I've got God figured out. And so we unconsciously or subconsciously start trying to work God into our benefit. And then we find out it doesn't work. Found out like the lady Margaret, you don't know her. She's just a, a story in the news of a Christian journal. But Margaret, great relationship with her father-in-law. Find out that her father-in-law has cancer and they find out 14 months before he passes away. And she's telling the story post losing her father-in-law. And she said, those 14 months of that journey with a, with a guy who stood in the gap like a father to me, those 14 months were some of the most spiritual months of my life. As I wrestled through losing him, I, I drew closer to God. I felt God speaking to me. I felt the comfort of God. And when he passed, there was actually a peace. She had been going to church, kept going to church, but her husband, the son of the father, had a totally different experience. And after his father passed away, he stopped going to church altogether. In fact, on Sunday mornings, as she would get ready to go, he would say sarcastic comments like, I can't believe you'd be going to uh, worship a God who has no power like that. I can't believe you still believe in a God who let my father die. And the husband went from a person who claimed faith in Jesus to, to a self-professed atheist. Said, I don't, I don't believe in God. That's the temptation. When we start assuming that God, and here's a lot of Christians believe this, we'd never admit it. When we start believing that God is like our great heavenly butler, that he exists for, for, for my, my life, that God is here to make everything that I want come true. God is like the genie in the lamp. I rub the lamp and God comes out and I pray and I ask him for things. And then God doesn't work like we think he's going to work. All of a sudden we're angry. All of a sudden God's let us down. And if we were really honest, what we would have to say is this, God, you didn't do what I told you to do. Therefore, you must not be God. And when we sit in a room like this, outside of the emotions of walking through something like that, that sounds silly. Because when we say, God, you didn't do what I want you to do. Therefore, you must not be God. What we're really saying, if you peel those layers back is I'm God. I'm God and I tell you what to do. And if you don't do it, you're in trouble with me. That we, we kind of reversed, reversed the system there. And so that's the second temptation. And we're going to see how Jesus handles this. You think you've got God figured out. You think you've got him uh, packaged up in this box and he works for you. And so you're going to work him on your behalf when temptation comes. Now let's look at what Jesus said. Go to Matthew chapter four. I love this. Man, this is good stuff. I'm going to go back as you're flipping there. I'm going to catch us up. I'm going to go back to verse one. It says, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter, that Satan, came and said to him, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread and, and become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, 
Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now we pick up the second temptation in verse five. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it's written. And now Satan's gonna quote scripture like Jesus quoted scripture in the first temptation. Now Satan's gonna give him scripture. He says, throw yourself down. If you're the son of God for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you. That's Psalm 91 too. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now I don't know how this happened. That's one of these things in the Bible. I would have loved to have been there. How Jesus and Satan end up on top of the temple. I don't know. I'm assuming it's some supernatural thing, but they're up on this temple, 100 feet in the air, 10 stories up, and they're looking down and they can see the priests doing their job and they see people coming and going. And Satan says to Jesus, he's like, jump. And Satan's kind of talking and Satan's going, you know, Jesus, you know how hard it's going to be. You know what's going to happen. You're going to go down there you're gonna tell people you're the son of God and they're gonna roll their eyes. You're gonna say, I'm the son of God. And they're gonna say, yeah, you and the last 17 people that's walked through here saying that for the last 40 or 50 years. And you're not gonna get a hearing. Saying, goes, jump. The, the scripture says, the scripture says the angels are gonna save you. God is not going to let his thousand plus year plan of you as the Messiah go out the window, Right? Come on, Jesus, think through this. God's been working this for a long time. So you jump, God's gonna save you and just think what's gonna happen. You're gonna jump off, boom. You're gonna hit, dust is gonna go everywhere. People are gonna start freaking out because somebody jumped from the temple and then you're gonna get up and you're gonna brush the dust off your robe and you're gonna go, I'm the son of God. And it's gonna be so much easier. No cross, no no walking through the wilderness. No, you know, you're going to say later, there's the son of, God, son of man has no place to lay his head. You got no place. I mean, you're going to have a crowd. That's what you wanted. And God is, God's going to save you. So do it. But Jesus knew better. Jesus knew that he wasn't to presume upon and assume what God would do. His father. It's like, it's like the 17 year old boys that who are out in the car and they're driving around and it's a Friday night and they've, they've been drinking. And as they're driving around, the more they drink, the little bit more buzz they get, they start to go faster. They start to, they start to show off. They start to have some fun. And, and the kid in the back seat has a little bit of a conscience. Maybe it's the Holy Spirit speaking into him. He, and he realizes things are getting a little bit out of control. And he says something to the rest of his buddies, guys, maybe we should just go back to my house. Maybe you, know, you, maybe you should slow down. And then one of the other kids says, hey, don't, don't worry about it. My dad's a lawyer. If something happens to us, my dad will get us out of it. My dad's like the best lawyer in town. He knows everybody. We got nothing to worry about. That may be true. But what happened is this. The father who is the rightful authority, the father who has the power, the son has now just made a decision to make the father who has the rightful power and authority subservient to the son. You see how that happened? Son said, hey, I'm gonna presume upon and assume on my dad's power and influence and ability. We'll go do whatever we want because I'll make my dad take care of it if something goes wrong. And in that situation, we go, as parents, we go, oh boy, I wouldn't, you know. But that's what we do. We just assume that God is going to show up and save the day no matter what we do. And temptation comes and Satan knows how we're wired. And so Satan starts to take our lack of intimacy with God. 
our, our lack of understanding of who he is, the lack of relationship depth that we have because we've been playing the church game. We haven't really been seeking Jesus on a daily basis. We haven't be, become the sanctified man or woman of God that God has called us to be or, or, or working that direction. And Satan knows we have this limited understanding of God. He knows that the relationship isn't deep. So he exploits what we think we know and he uses it against us. And he starts to whisper things in here. God wouldn't do that. God forgives. You're, you're gonna be okay. It, it's kind of like, it's, it's like the, the high school girl who starts dating the guy who's not a believer. And she knows, man, the scripture says not to be unequally yoked, but I'm gonna start dating this guy because I know that God wants him to be saved. And so God's gonna use me. So we'll start dating and I'll start praying for him and things will all work out. And, and so I've, I'm, God, you're gonna start working for me. God, you've got to do something now because I'm dating him. So God, you've got to step up. It's the, it's the leader in the youth ministry kid that's gonna fail his class. And he knows if he fails, his mom and dad are gonna ground him. And they've already told him, you're not going on winter retreats. You're not going on Wednesday night or whatever. And, and he's been tempted to do other things. And he's thought in his mind, God, you gotta show up. I'm gonna pass, you can't let me miss this because I'm a leader. And so God, you gotta do something. And God is probably going, I, I did do something. I gave you a teacher and a book to study from. You know, that, that's what I gave you. Uh, but, but we start leveraging that. We put ourselves as, as parents or as adults, as just people, we put ourselves into these bad situations. We walk headlong into temptation and we go, Jesus, it's on you now. It's, it's like, you remember, you, used to, you know, maybe when you were younger, you had a ball and, and you like, you, you throw it at a friend and go, think fast. And you toss it to him, you know, they grab it. Does anyone get hit in the face with the ball? That's what we do. We just jump on into temptation. We go, hey, God, think fast. And we, and we jump. And we go, Where's the, God, it's, it's on you to catch me. Well, look at what Jesus says. Because that's what Satan's temptation is. In verse seven, Jesus said to him, again, it's written, you shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test. Flip over to Exodus chapter 17. In Exodus chapter 17, we, we find the story, we're picking up the, the back end of the story. If you're not familiar with them, I'm not gonna go through the whole thing, but the Israelites, you can read it through the book of Exodus. The Israelites have been slaves in Egypt for years. And Moses has been raised up by God to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And you might've seen it in the movie, The Ten Commandments, or there's been movies made up. And, and, and Moses goes and through a bunch of plagues, ends up leading the Israelites out of Egypt and he's leading them to the promised land. But along the way, it's a journey and along the way, they have a lot of issues with God. They end up making some de decisions that cost them 40 years of wandering. God lays consequences out for them because of decisions they made. But they find themselves in the desert of sin. And it's not like, it, that's a Hebrew word, sin. It's not, it wasn't like a desert full of sin in our English word. The English words in Hebrew, that's just the name of it. And they're there and you're talking about a million people and there's no water there in a desert. And they start grumbling, they start get angry. They start to blame Moses because they think they've got God figured out and that God is supposed to do whatever they tell him to do. I mean, God has already been supernaturally feeding them both day and night. And in Exodus 17, verse one, it says this, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidium, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses, who was God's appointed leader, and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? You know, we're probably losing a lot of what happened. You know, we read it like a, a vacation Bible school. They're like, we thought they just had a small argument. No, this is a big deal. Um, the people are ready to turn on him. 
He says, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So this moment has happened in history. In Exodus, the people, they're angry with God because he didn't do what they thought he should do. And they're holding him responsible and they're holding Moses responsible because Moses is the one who knows God. He's the, he's the one that's gone into the tent of meeting. He's the one that God has spoken to. And so they're, dis, they're, they're showing their frustration, their displeasure with God through Moses because Moses is the appointed guy. God ends up showing up and taking care of the day at this point. Not because he has to, because he does. But then in Deuteronomy, flip over to Deuteronomy chapter six. It's about uh, two books over. Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter six, Moses is giving a speech to the Israelites and he's reflecting back over their history. So he's gonna reflect back on this moment as well as others. And in Deuteronomy chapter six, verse 16, he says this, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. And that's what he ended up naming the place in the desert of sin. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him in Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and the statutes which he's commanded you. So Jesus, now we fast forward back to history. Jesus is on the top of the temple and Satan goes, throw yourself off. God's gonna save you. It's gonna be so much easier this way. And think about it, God will be fine with it because it's just gonna save him a lot of work. And Jesus reflects back through history, through this moment, through the Israelites' journey, and he quotes Deuteronomy chapter six. And he says, it's also written, don't test the Lord your God. Don't presume that God is your spiritual butler. Don't assume that you know God so well that you know exactly how he thinks and how he's gonna move in a situation. That's the temptation. That's the, the lie that Satan whispers into us and he's whispered into your ear probably sometime this month, if not this week. God will do this. God forgives. God won't let that happen. And we bite it hook, line, and sinker over and over again. Jesus knew better. Jesus knew better. Jesus, the son of God, knew I'm not going to test God. I'm not going to jump off. I'm going to follow through and be obedient to what God's called me to do. So what can we do? What are some action plans that we can take to help us as we're walking in our faith journey? Because again, this is that, I said earlier, this is a subtle temptation. Last week we talked about you know, stones to bread, physical needs. We see that coming a lot of times, not always, but we see that coming a lot more than we see this. Here's the first thing. And if you're taking notes, I'm just gonna give you two. The first thing is this, we wake up every morning. We wake up every morning and we surrender the day to God. We wake up and we say, God, today, I'm gonna cooperate with you, not manipulate you. God, I'm gonna take whatever, day, whatever comes my way, whether you sent it or whether you just allowed it. God, whatever comes my way, I'm cooperating with you. I'm walking with you. I'm journeying with you. We'll figure it out together. If I don't understand it, I'm gonna trust you. That's temptation number one. I'm gonna trust you. God, I am not, as things come along my day, going to try to manipulate what you've allowed or what's happened to my benefit. Some of the most unhappy people in the world are people who are Christians who haven't fully surrendered their life to Jesus. Some of the most unhappy people in the world 
because they've still got pieces. They're going, no, I'm doing it my way. And, and they're the ones that have never really embraced that they're not gonna manipulate God. They're gonna absolutely cooperate with him. When you walk into full surrender is when the Christian life starts to really make sense. You know, I told the story of Margaret, the lady who had the father-in-law who died of cancer. In contrast to her, husband at least, somebody fully surrendered. This guy named David Kraft. He grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. I grew up in a godly Christian home. Um, big guy, 6'2", 200 pounds, worked with FCA, high school athlete. Surrendered to the ministry, went to seminary. And when he was 32 years old, they diagnosed him with cancer, just like Margaret's father-in-law. 6'2", 200 pounds, athlete, called of God to do ministry. And as cancer begins to rack his body, he loses weight. He goes from 200 pounds to 80 pounds. Six foot two, 80 pounds. He's laying in the hospital bed. And his family's there because the, the end's near. And he asks his dad as he's laying there, very sick, about to die. I'm trying, I'm trying not to get emotional. I tell the story because it's powerful. He says, dad, do you remember when I was a kid? You remember when you used to pull me close and just put my head on your chest? His dad said, yeah. And David said, would you do that for me one last time? His dad leaned in, held his son to his chest and pulled him away. And they were looking eye to eye, tears running down both their face. And this 32-year-old guy at the peak of his life, family, looks at his dad and says, dad, thank you for putting the character in my life that we allow me to face a situation like this. Those are powerful words to a parent. When it's real, when the end's right there and it's your child. Here's the guy, 32, young guy, younger than most of us in here, that was able to get up in the morning and say, God, I'm gonna cooperate with you, whatever it is. God, I've surrendered my life to yours. God, I'm not gonna be angry at you. I'm gonna try to manipulate you. God, I don't know if you caused the cancer. I don't know if you just allowed the cancer. God, I don't know. But I'm not gonna manipulate my relationship with you for myself. I'm gonna cooperate and love you and walk where you call me to walk and live how you call me to live until I get to go home. So our task, our task is to wake up tomorrow morning and say, God, cooperating, not manipulating you. Not gonna let temptation come in and trick me into thinking I can work you. God, I'm not gonna let Satan whisper that I've got you all figured out and then I'm going, I know how you work. And since I know how you work, I'm gonna work you to my benefit. It's a matter of simple surrender and submission, but it happens, it's gotta happen every morning when we wake up. Here's the second thing. Once we make that decision, the second thing is, we've got to take the next step into our relationship with Jesus. You see, the problem, one of the main problems, when we think we know how God works, what Satan uses against us is our ignorance because we really don't know how God works. We're biblically illiterate. We don't know how to listen to the Holy Spirit. We might be thinking about temptation and we might be going, hey, God's gonna do this because I know how God works and God is, is all but yelling at us. That's not how it works. That's not what, run the other direction, flee temptation. And we can't hear him because we don't know how to hear his voice. We never tried. We don't spend time in his word. We don't spend time in prayer because we're too busy. 
We don't spend time in, in spiritual disciplines. We don't even have any margin in our life for solitude or silence to hear God. We're so busy, go, go, go. We think we've got to figure out and the, and the tempter knows. And he goes, man, I got you right where I want you. So step number two is to take the next step. I'm not asking you to become fully sanctified. I'm not asking you to become spiritually mature tomorrow. But what's the next step? What's the next step in the relationship? Man, I, I, my college roommate, I had the opportunity, his name's Lee. I've told this story before, but I love it. He, he asked me to help him with his engagement back when we were in college. He'd been dating a girl named Melanie and, and, and he said, this, she's the one, want to get, get married. And so we planned a double date to Austin. We lived at the time in, in Brownwood. We were both at school at Howard Payne. And so we made a double date plan to go down to Austin and uh, you know, get to, to start this miracle. When I say miracle, the miracle wasn't that I found a date for the double date. That was close, but uh, it was to start this miracle that was moving towards marriage. So I have a friend and I go pick her up and we go and we go down to Green Pastures in Austin. He's got this fancy place we're gonna go to. And, and we go down, we're all dressed up, you know, in, in, our, in our ties and stuff like that. And, and you know, that's one of those things I look back now, there is nothing that a suit or a tie can do to fix a mullet. Like I had at the time, it was, but I was trying, we're looking good. And um, we get to the, uh, to the Green Pastures and he says, hey, can, would you take a picture of us? And actually, I think I said it to try. I said, hey, hey, take a picture of Lorraine and I. So there's a gazebo out there and Lorraine and I go stay in the gazebo and I had a, a Polaroid camera in the back of the car we were driving and he takes a picture and he goes, hey, well, take a picture of us. This is all planned. So Lorraine and I go and we take a picture of him and Mel in the gazebo and we go inside and we eat dinner. And after dinner, they go, hey, he goes, hey, can you go for a walk with me? And she goes, sure. So they go out for a walk. And Lorraine, we're in green, fancy restaurant. Lorraine, I get it. And we run, we're like looking through the blinds, like out the windows, you know, like, excuse me, ma'am. You know, I know you're watching them. We need this window. And he and her go out to this gazebo and they're talking. And he says, hey, I have something for you. I don't know if it was an anniversary or birthday. I can't remember. He pulls out this picture book and they open it up and he had gone around and he said, hey, here's the picture of the, the first place or here's the picture of the place where we first met. And, she, and it was a Polaroid picture flips the picture and he says, that's, that's the first place we ever went on a date. Hey, here's a picture from the first time we ever went to your parents' house. Here's a picture from the first time we kissed. And he's going through all of these memories. And she turns to the back page and it's the picture of them standing in the gazebo from that night. And he gets down on one knee and he goes, and this is the place where I asked you to marry me. <laughs> yeah, right? I know, I'm like, are you kidding me? How do I top that? That's like phenomenal. Like you couldn't even pass Greek, but you came up with that idea. Like, you're brilliant. But for him, and that was this magical moment, and, and he wanted to be a big deal because it was the next step, right? He said, man, we, we've been dating and we love each other, but the next step, I'm, I'm leaping in both feet. We're gonna get engaged. And it was a big, it was, it was a major moment. And then it, they had other moments, they had smaller moments along the way, but then they had another big moment where we got married. And then they had some other moments along the way they've had brought, you know, big moments with kids and things like that, which is the next step in their relationship. Sometimes they're big steps, sometimes they're small steps. What's the next step? For you, it may be God calling you to get involved in a Bible study, like an in-depth Bible study to get to know him better because the better you know him, the less power the tempter has. Maybe it's that he's called you to serve someplace and, you need, and you've got a ministry. God's told you, get off the sideline. Your butt is wearing out the pews. I've got a place for you to serve. I've got a place for you to work. It might be a mission trip. It might be God calling your next step. It might be that God's called you to, to take seriously praying for and sharing the gospel with your family members. It could be 
And God's called you to make a commitment to being a part of the local body of believers and, and, and to make life group more than a once a month thing or, or to, to go to worship. And the next step may be God calling you to, to memorize scripture. I don't know what the next step is. Maybe your next step is fasting for 40 days. I, I don't know. The spirit of God and you know. We wake up every morning with God, no more manipulation, only cooperation. I'm surrendering my day to you. I'm not gonna let the tempter try to get me to work you. And then we take the next step and we go, God, I'm taking baby step number one and there's gonna be more, right? I'm gonna take baby step number one because I wanna know you better. Because the better I know you, and here's what you'll find out. The more you know God, the closer you get to God, the more you realize how far away you are from him. Hear that? The closer you are to God, the more you realize how far away from him you are. The closer I get to Jesus is the more I realize how his holiness and my lack of, there's such a gap. The closer I get to God, the more I realize how absolutely big he is and how tiny I am. If you are far away from God, it's very easy to say, I've got God all wrapped up. I know how he works. But when you get closer to God, even though you know him intimately and you know him better, you realize that he is too deep and too infinite and too big to fully comprehend with our finite mind. That's a mark of maturity. And as we walk with him, we go, I get to know you more and I wanna know you more every day. I'll never get there until I see you face to face. But the more I know you, the better I know you, the less power the tempter has. We're gonna split into our small groups. Before we do, i share this last story with you. It happened not too long ago, 2006. A Ukrainian guy, St. Petersburg newspaper writes about this. A Ukrainian guy is at a zoo in the Ukraine. And he probably wasn't mentally all there, but he brings a rope to the zoo. He ties a rope to the railing and starts rappelling down into the exhibit where the lions are. There's four lions in there. And he gets down there and he's now in there. And of course, they've tried to get the authorities, but it's happening too fast and people are watching. And this guy takes his shoes off and he yells at the top of his lungs in Russian, if God exists, he'll save me. It's a true story. And he starts walking towards the lions. And a lioness does what a lioness does and rips out the guy's carotid artery and he dies right there. And you're waiting for the miracle, like, well, no, no. That's what happens when you get into a cage with a lion. They eat you. I mean, that's just, that's common sense. And that sounds silly. Not silly, that sounds dumb, right? I mean, who, who climbs into a lion's pit and walks towards him? And we'd go, man, that guy, there, there must've been, and this is what I'd feel, I think you, there must've been something mentally insane, mentally ill with the guy. Maybe not. Because you and I have done it already this month, probably. There's some temptation out there and it was a no brainer. You knew, you knew that it was gonna end in disaster. I, you had this whispering, it's going, ah, oh, maybe there's a chance or I'll get away. You knew it was going to cost you. You knew because you've already experienced it before. You've been there, same place, same time. And you experienced the guilt and the shame. And you climbed back in again and went, God, if you exist, do something. We think we know how God works. And then we try to work God. It's temptation number two. Let's not be the foolish man who enters into the pit of temptation, expecting and expecting God to be subservient to us. The mature believer 
surrenders to God and gets to know him better so they can avoid those situations.